Last week, we began a brand new series of messages here at Sunrise called Extreme Makeover Soul Edition. And we talked primarily about how God wants to work a makeover in our lives to the point that we become like His Son. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, For God knew His people in advance, and He chose them to become like His Son. And so last week, we talked about how God wants to work this makeover, primarily by bringing us into a relationship with Jesus. And we saw that the closer we get to him and the more we learn about him, the more we become like him. We begin to take on his character, his values, his desires, his priorities. Little by little, through a lifelong process, we become like his son. So that was all last week. This week, we're going to look at some of the signs that this is actually happening. Some of the indicators that we are, in fact, becoming more like Jesus. And I think the greatest indicator is our motivation. What's our motivation? Who are we living for? Are we living for ourselves or are we living for God? Because it's not the external things that we struggle with. It's ourselves and it's our desires, our happiness, our comfort, our popularity. Now, it's not bad to be happy. It's not wrong to be comfortable. It's not evil to be popular. But when all we seek are those things and they become more important than God, then they become a problem. And they can greatly interfere or even destroy a relationship with Him and prevent the makeover that he's performing in us. So the big question is, who has the place of priority in your life? You or God? Because God alone deserves that place of priority. He made us, he calls us, he saves us, he provides for us, he loves us, he forgives us and restores us. In Christ, he paid the penalty that we deserve because of our rebellion against God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 say, You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. That means we can't even put ourselves before him. He has the place of priority. He comes first. He paid the price for us, and we accept that when we accept what he did for us on the cross. When we do that, we become his. We begin to live for Him. And when that happens, you know that you're growing. You know that you, you're becoming more like Jesus. And so this morning, what I want to do is break that down into five signs. Five signs that you're becoming more like Jesus. And in your Sunrise Update, in your bulletin this morning, you'll find some notes that you can use to follow along and fill in the blanks. Signs that I'm becoming more like Jesus. The first sign is this. I seek God's approval not man's applause. Now we normally think of this as a teenage problem. Teenagers want the approval of others. Teens want to be liked. Teens do things because everyone else is doing them. Teens give in to the, into peer pressure. But that's not just a teenage problem, is it? Of course, we adults don't just call it peer pressure. Uh, we call it going with the flow or compromising or finding middle ground, not causing waves. But, don't, but we don't want to do anything, we don't want to say anything that's going to upset anyone or make them distance themselves from us because we want their approval. We may call it something different, but it's the same thing. We're seeking man's applause. In the New Testament, shortly after Jesus was arrested, the religious leaders, who were also influential politically, uh, they presented their case before Pontius Pilate. Pilate was a Roman official who had all the authority to either release Jesus or have him executed. And all kinds of, of accusations were being made against Jesus. The religious leaders arranged for people to even tell lies and make false accusations against him. And they really incited a mob mentality. 
Maybe you've seen that new game show on TV, One versus 100. Well, on, on that day, it was really one against thousands. It was Jesus against the mob, and Pilate felt the pressure of that. In fact, we're told in the Bible that Pilate found Jesus innocent, and he wanted to release him, and he even offered to have Jesus flogged or have him whipped before he released him, and thinking that would satisfy the crowd. But the crowd rose up with a mighty roar, demanding that Jesus be given the death penalty. Again, Pilate declared that Jesus was innocent, but the people continued to shout for his death. So finally, Pilate gave in and handed Jesus over to be crucified. But Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew that Jesus didn't deserve to die. He knew that he should release Jesus, but he didn't do that. Why? He didn't release Jesus because of the pressure that was placed on him to do what everyone else wanted him to do and to gain the approval of the crowd. That's why. Pop quiz. Who's the richest man in the world? It's Bill Gates. Bill Gates has a net worth of $50 billion. That's an increase of almost $10 billion in just the past three years. According to Forbes magazine, Warren Buffett comes in second at $42 billion. So Bill Gates is worth about 20% more than the next richest man. But let me tell you about another man who would put them all to shame. King Solomon in the Old Testament was the third king of Israel. And at that point of history, Solomon was the richest king in the world. Comparatively, he would have put Bill Gates to shame. He was also the wisest man in the world. But catch this. The guy had 700 wives. Now, I love my wife. I enjoy being married. But 700? I've heard of the 700 Club, but I had no idea. Uh, maybe Solomon wasn't so wise after all. Actually, it was pretty common at the time for people in general, and royalty in particular, to have several wives. It was often more of a political union than it was a matter of the heart. Treaties could be sealed with a wedding. But God had actually warned Solomon not to intermarry with the surrounding nations because those wives would lead him to worship false gods. But Solomon didn't listen, and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. We're told in 1 Kings chapter 11 that Solomon gave in to the pressure that his wives were placing on him. He built shrines for all of his foreign wives to worship their own gods, and he even began to worship them himself. Why? Why would he do such a thing? Because he wanted their applause. He wanted to make them happy because it would make him look good in their eyes. And so he gave in to the pressure. You go to school, people put pressure on you. You go to work, people put pressure on you. You go to a club, people put pressure on you. You come to church, people put pressure on you, even here. We all face the pressure to fit in. Nobody likes to be singled out. We're all jealous of people who seem to be in the in crowd, the ones who get all the attention and get all the breaks and have all the friends, and it feels good when people accept us and make us feel important. But when that pressure tells you to do something that you know is wrong, don't give in to it. Take a look at this verse from Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul wrote, Obviously, I'm not trying to be a people pleaser. No, I'm trying to please God. If I were still trying to please people, I would not be Christ's servant. So instead of seeking the applause of men, seek the approval of God. Make it your goal to someday hear him say to you what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 25, Well done, my good and faithful servant. 
You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I'll give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Putting God first means that you seek God's approval over man's applause. It also means I seek God's way over my way. That's number two. I seek God's way over my way. Wasn't that Frank Sinatra's signature song? Paul Anka sings that too, but I did it my way. And when you hear Frank sing that, wow, it, it just sounds so victorious, so triumphant, so, so, so lonely, so meaningless, so self-absorbed. Now I'm not here to bash Frank. In fact, I kind of like that song. But I think that I did, I did it my way attitude can be dangerous because my way is not necessarily the right way. In fact, this is what the Bible says. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, it says, There is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. And God says in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 9, For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You see, this is what I've come to realize. God made me, and he made me for a purpose. He made me special just like he made you special. And the only way that I'm going to achieve my full potential and the only way that I'm going to, to succeed in what I'm here for is for me to learn his plans for me, to learn his ways and follow his ways. For those of you who are parents, do you remember when your kids first started to express their independence? Maybe you're in the middle of that right now. You know, one day they're, they're kind of cute and cuddly and they're content to just be held. And the next day, they're pushing you away. And they want to do everything on their own and in their own way. That's a, a pretty common thing with kids. They want to do everything in their own way and in their own time. But when God makes you over, that begins to change. Putting God first means that you seek His way over your way. It means your plans change to reflect His plans. Let me show you a couple more verses. Uh, in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek His will in all you do, and He will direct your paths. And in Psalm 119, verse 105, it says, Your word, God, talk, speaking to God, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Number three. Putting God first means I seek obedience over convenience. I seek obedience over convenience. Choosing to live as a Christian and devote your life to God does not mean that everything will be hunky-dory for you. In fact, it can mean the exact opposite, that you will encounter difficulties and challenges in life that without God's help you wouldn't survive. Because we're not called to a life of comfort or convenience, we're called to a life of obedience. It's not like going to a buffet where you choose what looks good to you and you ignore the rest. The call in your life and mine is to be fully devoted, radical followers of Jesus Christ, regardless of the cost. I once heard a story about Thomas Jefferson, and I can't confirm whether the story is true or if it's just something that someone made up, uh, but this is what I heard. Thomas Jefferson wanted to be a Christian and he wanted to take God seriously, but there were parts of the Bible that, that seriously troubled him. Perhaps there were passages that demanded more of him than he was willing to give. So he took a pair of scissors and began to cut out the parts that he didn't like. 
But really, that's not an option. We don't get to pick and choose what we think is important because everything God says in his word is important. And sometimes it's not convenient to be obedient. Sometimes it's not comfortable. But that doesn't negate the fact that we're called to a life of obedience. Let me read to you a passage from Luke chapter 9. It's a longer passage, so just listen. Uh, Starting at verse 57, it says, As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you no matter where you go. But Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in, birds have nests, but I, the Son of Man, have no home of my own, not even a place to lay my head. He said to another person, Come, be my disciple. The man agreed, but he said, Lord, First, let me return home and bury my father. Jesus replied, Let those who are spiritually dead care for their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach the coming of the kingdom of God. Another said, Yes, Lord, I will follow you. But first, let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, Anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Okay, so is is Jesus anti-family? No, Jesus is all for families. So what's he saying here in these verses? Well, he wants us to understand that it's not about what we want. It's about what God wants. It's not about convenience. It's about obedience. Number four, I seek holiness over happiness. I seek holiness over happiness. That's that's the fourth sign that I'm becoming more like Jesus. There's a quote I heard years ago, and I believe it was from Chuck Colson, so that's who I'm going to give credit to. But the quote was this, Contrary to popular opinion, the call of the church is not to make people happy, but to make them holy. Michael W. Smith is a name that you may recognize as a top-selling recording artist with success on both the secular and Christian charts. Listen to what he said. He said, Everybody plays it safe. Here's where I'm at. I've got a franchise. I can sit here and play it safe, protect the franchise, do well the rest of my life, retire and be happy. That's the last thing I need to do, even if it costs me my career. I've got to be God's man. I've got to impact culture. So he's saying it's not enough to play it safe. He's got to be obedient. He's got to follow God. He's got to seek holiness over his own happiness. He's got to seek everything that God has planned for him. So what's the difference between happiness and holiness? Well, happiness is a result of our circumstances and our happiness changes from day to day. What are some of the things that influence our level of happiness? Just think for a moment. What are some of the things that affect your happiness? Our happiness can be based on so many different things. It can be based on the weather, our work, our families, the random events of life. Holiness, on the other hand, is an internal condition that's the result of daily surrendering ourselves to the work of God. Last week, we talked about how being holy does not mean that you're completely without fault. It does not mean that you become someone who's really weird, who's completely out of touch with reality. It does not mean that it's impossible for you to sin. But we discovered that it does mean that it is possible for you not to sin. It means that you aim to glorify God in thought, word, and deed. It means that you love God with everything you've got and you love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means to be holy. And if you're becoming more like Jesus, then you're going to seek holiness. Check out this verse here from 1 Peter 1, verse 15. It says, But now you must be holy in everything you do, 
just as God who chose you is holy. So I seek holiness over happiness. That's a sign that I'm becoming more like Jesus. And the fifth sign is that I seek transformation over val validation. I seek transformation over validation. Here's a quote from Rick Warren. Rick Warren has said, God's ultimate goal for your life on earth is not comfort, but character development. He wants you to grow up spiritually and become like Christ. Becoming like Christ does not mean losing your personality or becoming a mindless clone. God created your uniqueness, so he certainly doesn't want to destroy it. Christ-likeness is all about transforming your character, not your personality. That's what Rick said. Now, if you seek validation... You want people to tell you that you're okay just the way that you are. You want to be told that your priorities, your standards, your lifestyle, your actions, you want to be told that they're all fine, that there's no room for improvement. You've already attained all there is to attain. If you're seeking validation, that's what you want to hear. But here's what I believe. I believe the Bible teaches us that God loves us just the way we are, yes, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. It's not validation that we need. It's transformation. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18, it says, and the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. You know, one of the stereotypes of Christians today is that they're judgmental. Sometimes that's a reputation that's earned, sometimes it's not. But sometimes we do tend to get judgmental of those who live in ways that we don't condone and that we know the Bible speaks against, people who are living in those ways. We look at passages like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, where it says, Don't you know that those who do wrong will have no share in the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, who are idol worshippers, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexuals, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, abusers, and swindlers, none of these will have a share in the kingdom of God. We look at verses like that, and we begin to look down on people who are involved in those kinds of things. We become self-righteous and judgmental. And the problem is that we forget the reality of the very next verse. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says, There was a time when some of you were just like that. But now your sins have been washed away and you've been set apart for God. You've been made right with God because of what the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God have done for you. There was a time when some of you were just like that. And the truth is all of us have done things that are listed here in this passage or in other places in the Bible which we know God detests and we know that we've hurt him greatly. And it's only through the forgiveness offered to us through the sacrifice of Jesus when he died for you and for me that any of us have any hope at all of having a relationship with God and spending eternity with him. We're all sinners in need of God's grace. You, me, everyone in this room, everyone in this world, we're all sinners in desperate need of God's grace. All of us need the transforming work of God in our lives. We don't need to be validated and told that we're okay the way we are. God loves us the way we are, but he doesn't want us to stay that way. He doesn't validate us that way. He transforms us. We all need to allow ourselves to be transformed by the power of God into the people that he wants us to be. 
people who become like his son. So where are you at? Do you see evidence that this transformation is taking place? Have you chosen to allow God to work in your life, making you like his son? And I'm going to tell you, it's not a one-time decision. It's a daily commitment. It's getting up every morning and giving God permission to do anything he wants to do with you, anything he wants to do in you, and anything he wants to do through you. But little by little, as you do this and as you trust God's hand in your life, you will see the signs of change. Well, let me give you an opportunity to respond to this. If you feel in your heart that God's been speaking to you and you know that you need to stop living for yourself and start living for God, then admit that to yourself. Recognize that at this moment. And I want to pray for you uh, here and, and I would like to invite you to pray along with me for the life-changing power of God and for the presence of His Spirit to infiltrate your life. Father, thank you for the work that you do in our lives. Thank you for not leaving us lost to our sinfulness. Thank you for calling us and transforming us and making us like your son. Help us to seek your ways with all of our hearts and continue the work that you've begun in our lives, we pray. And now you can pray. You can pray something like this. You can pray, Jesus, I want to be more like you. I know that's your design for my life. Help me to take my eyes off of other people and seeking their applause and instead seek after you. I don't want to live my way anymore. I want to live your way. I trust your transforming work in my life. Thank you for what you're doing in me. In your name I pray. Amen.